Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we get to come but to be together before you freely, publicly, in spite of the political discord in this world, the pandemic causing social separation, and all the other personal and societal things in life that strive to pull us away from you. Thank you that we get to be here today, this Sunday. And thank you for sending the counselor, the Holy Spirit, to be with us and encourage us on our daily lives, to guide us and help us fight against the devil's evil schemes that strive to pull us away from you. Spirit, it is easy to get distracted by the world's lies and our sinful flesh. We spend our time and energy on things to please ourselves and our own needs and wants in that moment, not what you have called us to and what is honoring to you. We bring this before you in repentance, God. <clears throat> we don't know how to fix our brokenness, but you do. You are our creator and redeemer. Soften our hearts that we may come before you and truly repent of the sin in our lives. Help us to lay down our sin before you and take up our cross and follow you. Will you change our hearts, Spirit? Make us into people that are honoring and pleasing to you. Jesus, you created us and you redeem us. You do it all from the beginning to the end. You are an infinite God, and we are so grateful for that. Who else could save us who did not also create us? We praise you for this, for your infinite and unmeasurable love and grace. We also praise you for not leaving us in our muck, but bringing us out to that, into the full and abundant life you desire for us. Jesus, may we understand more of who you are and your love for us. Father, we pray for our church here. We pray that you'd encourage each of us in whatever trials we're going through. We pray you'd help us to draw near to you in our trials and share them with you and that we'd pause to listen. We pray for this nation as it is stressed with political changes and ongoing pandemic limitations, that you would work your will in this country for your glory. We pray that you'd bring your peace to this nation, to our leaders, and that your name would be known for your glory, not ours. And Father, please be with all those affected by the wildfires this past month in Oregon and along the West Coast. Help us to love each other as your hands and feet, and may you use these trials to draw people to you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Jeanette. Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, in uh, moving through Mark. We were in Mark 13, and our text for today is going to be Mark 14, but you can turn to Romans 5. That's the first place I'll turn you. It's Romans 5, even though our main text is Mark 14, 1 through 11. And uh, it's good to be back with you after concluding our mini-series and the application of the truth of Mark 13. Um, it's been awesome to watch you uh, kind of put that into play and, and see how we can be the kingdom of God amidst a world of chaos. I've had some great conversations with some of you about how you've applied that and some things that it's brought conviction in. And so well done. Uh, that's just awesome to watch application in our lives. So we move out of Mark 13 and, and into the uh, end of the Passion Week, um, uh, the second half of the Passion Week here. Um, in this short text of 11 verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, we could focus on some awesome topics. There are some great secondary topics for sure. There's the sovereignty of God in using the betrayal of Judas and uh, the, the betrayal of the Pharisees to bring salvation. Uh, we could focus on uh, the idea of how Jesus breaks social boundaries and, and elevates the woman that's in the story uh, and, and, in a sense, brings justice in that place. Um, we could look at a number of different things, but what I want to focus on this morning, even though these are very relevant topics, 
is I want us to focus instead on what I think the focus uh, actually is from the original author, which is uh, a topic um, that I've entitled Extravagant Love. And you can uh, write that down as the title of the sermon this morning if you're taking notes. Um, What we're going to see today is the extravagant love of Jesus. Now, the story itself uh, seems like this extravagant love of the woman, and it is for sure. But when we compare that to the gospel, it's going to be an interesting comparison. You see, we're going to be covering this story that many of you know of Jesus being anointed before his burial by a woman who breaks an alabaster jar and uh, takes the perfume that's within it and anoints Christ. And this is indeed an extravagant form of worship and love. It's it's what we sang about earlier uh, just a moment ago. Her worship is indeed extravagant. But what we will ultimately see is that the deepest worship that we can show in response to the gospel of Christ, it pales in comparison to the extravagant love that Jesus has shown us in the work of the gospel. But let's begin this morning by defining this term I'm using, extravagant. Have you ever been given a gift that is so wonderful, so beautiful, that you almost felt unworthy to receive it? Has that ever happened to you? I tried to think through as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, and I'm going to go ahead and get my Kleenex ready just in case, because I lost it in the first service a little bit later, but now the waterworks have started, so we'll just get ready. Uh, but as I, I pondered uh, as I was preparing for this, I, start, I tried to think of gifts that I've been given, and I've been given some amazing gifts uh, from my wife, from my um, in-laws, from my family, right? And, and I was going to talk about those, but as I asked the question about extravagant gifts, I thought of my kids, um, I thought of my kids and how they've been given to us by the Lord. And many of you know the ins and outs of that story, and so I won't go into detail, but to say that with uh, each successive miscarriage that happened to my wife and I, we had this, this idea of having children kind of fleet away. Um, and the, the more we thought about it, the more we thought, man, this just isn't going to happen. And then one day we found out that we were having twins. It was our eighth pregnancy. And throughout the entirety of the pregnancy, we were cautiously optimistic. We learned not to get too excited. But when the day finally came for our twins to come into the world, John came first and then Jaden. And as they were birthed, both Kelly and I, and you can even hear this on the video we have, we we let out whimpers, uh, whimpers of relief, of thanksgiving, of appreciation, of awe, and even a sense of unworthiness to be these boys' parents. It was the same with our daughter, Kara. She came a number of pregnancies later as well. We named her Kara Jane because she is God's gracious gift to us. That's what her name means. With these wonderful children who are such a gift from God, we were shown generosity that we did not deserve. Uh, Nor did it make sense to us, quite honestly. It was extravagant. Exceeding what is reasonable or appropriate. Even absurd, that's extravagant. Just as our children were extravagant gifts to us from the Lord, the Lord has shown us in his gospel extravagant love. And it far surpasses anything we can experience, even the gift of being being parents. uh, His love of the gospel is far more extravagant. For us, as we enter this, this text this morning, we have the blessing of being able to look at it from 
uh, a little bit of hindsight. We are ahead of the cross, right? We're, we're in front of the cross. And the story that we're looking at today, it's, it's not yet the cross. It's a couple days before. But we can look at it with 2020 hindsight and see it and apply it as almost a, uh, it was a foretelling, but almost a, a background to the story. And so the first thing that we're going to look at this morning is the fact that the gospel is a proclamation of God's extravagant love. The gospel is a proclamation of God's extravagant love. Exceeding what is reasonable or appropriate, even absurd, that's what extravagant is. And the gospel is a proclamation of God's extravagant love. We as a church are a gospel-driven, gospel-motivated, gospel-believing church. Amen? Amen? And so we can sometimes, I think, fall into this trap of complacency when we think about the gospel, we say, well, we know the gospel, we live the gospel, we act in the gospel, and why do we need to keep talking about the gospel? But the problem is, is if we do that, we're going to unconsciously try to move on from the gospel as if there's something more to learn. Now, of course, there's discipleship, right? The, the uh, overflow of the gospel. But to be most fully effective, to be the f- most fully engaged disciples of Jesus... The gospel must not just be the beginning and the core of our faith. It must also be the completion of our faith and everything in between. And so we know the basics of the gospel. You guys know this well. Hopefully you have it memorized and you even use it when you're talking to people. This is John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God loved the world that he had created. And so the only natural outcome in his mind, the only thing that made sense in his mind and his character, was to give his most extravagant love, his son, out of his steadfast love and his faithfulness, out of his amazing loyalty to his creation, he gave us extravagant love. God himself stepped into humanity in the form of Jesus of Nazareth and freely gave himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. This is what 1 John uh, says. Uh, John wrote this letter a little bit later than his gospel. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It's what we read earlier. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The first word in this text, that word see, is a word that can also be rendered as behold. It's said with emphasis, look, with an exclamation mark. Look at what kind of love has been shown to us. The work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection has accomplished our adoption as children of the Most High God. The NIV then uses, instead of the word given there, it uses the word lavished. See what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us. This idea of lavish is to give an extravagant quantity, quantities that don't make sense. They're absurd And just the fact that God planned out and acted within the gospel shows a lavishness, an extravagance of love. It goes to this place where we think, man, how could he have done this? But then when we actually pull back and we understand the fullness of the gospel, it starts to show us that it's even more 
extravagant than we even comprehend because it wasn't just that we were all well and good and great and so God loved us because of that. It was that we were first enemies of him and he loved us in spite of that. Look with me at the book of Romans chapter 5. Hopefully you've already turned there. Chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. And let's look at how Paul put this together. He says it much better than I ever could. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We talked about the ministry of reconciliation a few weeks ago. Jesus has accomplished this for us. And let's break this down a little bit. The first five verses are given as a statement of what Jesus has accomplished for us. He justified us in the sight of God. He brought us peace with God. He brought us access to our creator. He brought us a confident expectation of eternal life. He gave us the ability to see life in a new way so that even sufferings become blessings because they turn us more into his character. And he poured out his love to us through the Holy Spirit, giving us empowerment to follow his law. But then, just as we are seeing in our understanding of the gospel this morning, it was not just love that came because we were good enough for it. It was extravagant. It was a love that was beyond reason. Why? Because unlike humanity, who would, random, or who would reasonably sacrifice maybe for someone who's righteous, for the sake of a person who's seen as good, God sacrificed himself for us while we were unrighteous, while we were actually his enemies. Unrighteous means sinful. While we were sinners, Christ died for, on behalf of, in the place of us. To sin is to act contrary or rebelliously towards the will of God, the law of God. And while we were in active rebellion against God's wishes, he gave himself for us. His love for us was not unconditional. It was contra-conditional. It was in spite of the conditions of relationship. He loved us. It's not that God saw our sin and, and winked at it and just passed on by it as if it was nothing. He saw it acknowledged it as horrific and destructive and died for us anyway. In dying for us, he not only justified us in the sight of the Father, he saved us from the wrath of God. He says it right there, that was rightfully ours to suffer. 
And this, guys, isn't the abusive father that's going to smite the son, right? It is the entirety of the Trinity. The book of Revelation says it's the wrath of the Lamb. And so the wrath of the entirety of the Godhead was going to be poured out upon us justly because we deserved it. And yet Jesus took our place. We were enemies of God operating under the law of a kingdom of wickedness in submission to the adversary of God in concert with men and women who shake their fist at God in anger and discount his sovereign reign. And yet, he gave his life to redeem us from that kingdom and draw us into his own, where we are not just property, dear friends, but we are his children. And we've been given a guarantee of an eternal inheritance that our minds cannot comprehend. God is so good. His love is so extravagant. One of the ways we can truly understand God's goodness and this idea of extravagant love is to look back at the Old Testament. And we see New Testament truths and Old Testament pictures. And so let's look back to the book of Exodus. Would you turn there with me? Uh, in the Old Testament, there goes Genesis and then Exodus. Go to Exodus 32 with me. Exodus 32. And as we move to this place, remember that prior to Exodus 32, God had in grace, by grace, saved Israel out of uh, slavery to Egypt, provided for them, guided them, led them, protected them from the armies of Pharaoh. And they arrive at this mountain where God is going to speak personally. And we almost take that for granted because we're in personal relationships with our creator through Jesus. But in that day, especially, the idea that a God would condescend to be near his people and speak to them blew their mind. And so this is the precursor. And if you know nothing else, you come to this story and think, okay, let's see their response of extravagant love to the extravagant, gracious love that Yahweh has shown them. But you guys know the story. Take a look there at 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Problem number one, what are we doing? We're making an idol here. We're trying to take the, the God that is beyond idolatry, right? It is bigger than anything created and make him created. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel. Problem number two, what did they just do? They took the idea that the God that saved them was actually this God, and it was multiple gods. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They're attributing God's work to something else. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a, a feast to the Lord. And notice the capital L-O-R-D there. What's going on there is he's saying, well, really, the Yahweh that saved us, this is him. Okay, So completely perverting who Yahweh is. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Problem number, I've lost count, four or five here. They get up and they worship this God in the pagan sense, rising up to play. Because there are children present, I'll just say it was very hedonistic and not great, if you get my drift. There's a problem here. And this response for you or for me, I don't know about you, maybe I'm more black-hearted and dark-hearted, but man, I would have just said, uh, I'm done. 
And God, in a sense, does do that. God loved Israel so much that he had freed them from slavery and was entering into covenant with them on the Mount of Sinai. But their response was to pervert him and to pervert his idea into a caricature and an idol that was more like the gods of their old life in Egypt than it was their new life with Yahweh. And God is not pleased here, and he goes to smite them, but also to blot out the names of those who were unrepentant from his book of life. But Moses intercedes, and he intercedes on behalf of the people as a whole, proclaiming that some have repented. And so God, in his justice, blots out some names from the book of life, but heeds this intercession from Moses and pulls back and renews his covenant. And he doesn't do it passive-aggressively, staying at a distance. Go to chapter 34 and look at what happens. He draws Moses into this intimate situation where he passes by Moses and Moses sees his afterglow. And we've we've quoted this a lot in the book of Mark, but in in, uh, Exodus 34, verse 6, it says this, The Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. In other words, Yahweh, Yahweh, the name of God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I don't know about you guys, but again, because I have this dark, sinful heart, I would have cut the entire first half of that. I would have said, just so you know, guys, I am the God who makes sure to not clear the guilty. But what does he start with? He starts with these amazing, lavish terms, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh my goodness, he is so extravagantly loving. And Moses rightly so responds by bowing and worshiping. Moses quickly bows his head, it says in verse 8, toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And if this were a man, he would have said, I'm gonna kind of stay on the outside and see how much you're actually serious about this. But what does he do? Turn ahead just to chapter 35 and 36 there and you can kind of look at it by the headings. Uh, Right above verse 30, you might have a heading in your Bible that talks about the tabernacle being built. He heeds Moses' request and he plants himself, his Shekinah glory, right in the dead center of the camp, at the heart of the camp. What an amazing picture of the gospel that we rose up to play and followed every God we could find other than the true and living creator God. And we rightly should have had our name blotted out of the book of life, but because of the intercession of Jesus Christ on our behalf, God decided to come and take up residence at the core of our being and the core of our camp. In this earthen vessel and tent, Jesus dwells by his glory and it gives all glory to him for his extravagant love. It's nothing we've done, nothing we've earned, amen? Amen. This is the gospel. This is the lavish, extravagant love that God gives us. His love truly exceeds what is reasonable or appropriate, In fact, I might even say that his love for us, dear friends, it's absurd. It makes no sense. But this morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 14, days before the cross and resurrection of which I speak, days before 
Jesus would pour out his life. And Mark is still operating in this overall theme of the gospel, which declares clearly who Jesus is. And at the end, what we'll see is this cliffhanger that calls us to ask the question, but who do you say Jesus is? And so in our text before us this morning, Mark is going to show us first and foremost in Mark 14, three responses to God's extravagant love. Would you turn there with me to Mark 14? Three responses to God's extravagant love. Technically, there are four, but I'm going to show you how two of them kind of come from the same heart. So let's go ahead and turn to Mark 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. This is the Wednesday evening of the Holy Week, and Jerusalem is packed full of pilgrims waiting to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jerusalem would grow to a size uh, as many as 10 times its, its normal size. So think about, you know, uh, Salem, 250,000 people-ish, right? It would grow to 2,500,000, right? That'd be a lot of people. So, man, you can imagine the, the hustle and bustle that's going on and, and the animals bleating and, and, and crying out as they're taken to be sacrificed. It was probably this crazy situation. And so the author is uh, giving us the, a little bit of background here to tell us what's occurring uh, by starting uh, with talking about the religious leaders. And he's going to use a method he's done many times already by sandwiching two contrasting ideas together. He's going to have the leaders and Judas as the, the buns of the sandwich, so to speak, or the buns of the burger. And then in the middle, the meat, he's going to give us the story of the woman who comes to anoint him. So let's take a look there in verse 1. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They knew that he could draw a following. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted? Uh, like this. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. First, we have the religious leaders and Judas operating out of the similar heart a desire to not have Jesus reign over them. For the religious leaders, it was out of a heart that they were the ones who held the kingdom, so to speak. For Judas, it was he felt he deserved more. Jesus was declaring himself the Son of Man from Daniel, the one to whom all dominion and authority had been given by the Father. The religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus because they thought that he was a heretic and that he could easily gain a larger following and cause division in Israel. And this was out of a heart of pride and refusal to see Jesus as the Messiah and King that he was sent to be. Judas ultimately landed in the same spot, but came about it from a different place. 
He was already a disciple. He got to see Jesus minister daily and participate in the ministry. He even held, he was the keeper of the, uh, of the money. Uh, he believed, though, that he deserved more. He wanted some treasure. And it was a heart of greed and ungratefulness that was driving him to plot to betray Christ. Both of these come from the same prideful rebellion and desire to answer to no one, especially God. They were all enticed by their own versions of pride, enticed away from the fear of the Lord that brings wisdom. And it's these two scenarios that paint a stark contrast for the response which is sandwiched between them. Many in the world still respond in this same way. They hear the true gospel of Jesus and they say to themselves, I don't want to have anyone reign over me. No, thank you. Now, this story is sandwiched in the middle of these two outcomes, this story of the woman who comes and anoints Jesus. And it's a story similarly used in all four Gospels. Uh, It's amazing to watch the authors of the Gospel take heed to what Jesus said, that her story would indeed be preached wherever the Gospel was preached. And so she is given amongst the Gospels. And this is actually amazing because while the Synoptic Gospels share many stories, to have a story go through all four, it says that this happened and that it was very amazing and it was meaningful. And there are discrepancies in this story and where it falls in the various Gospels in terms of chronology and even in how it takes place. In two of them, she's anointing his feet with the oil and she's washing his feet with her hair. In two of them, in Matthew and Mark, she's anointing his head. And so we, in our society, we freak out about this. But remember, this shouldn't cause doubt or concern. Gospel authors were not intending to give a play-by-play, police report type of account of Jesus' ministry. They were taking the various known uh, stories of Jesus and eyewitness accounts and compiling them into a gospel, a proclamation of an anointed one who's come to reign. And each author takes various pieces of the story and uses it rightfully so to proclaim a truth. And so while Matthew and Mark focus more so upon the the aspect of Jesus that he is a king to be anointed, uh, Luke and John focus more so upon the servant piece where she anointed his feet. And so she could have anointed his head and his feet. I think that's probably what happened. But uh, we don't get stuck on that because the gospel overall speaks truth. Commentators agree that because it's shared between the four, it definitely happened. And we don't need to get so lost in the detail. But let's take a look at it uh, from the vantage point of Mark. Unlike the other gospels, he leaves the person who does this, the woman, without a name. Jesus is there reclining with his friends in Bethany. Remember, they would lay back on pillows. Uh, The men would be separate from the women uh, in that society. Uh, This Bethany where he was at is a short couple of miles from the city center of Jerusalem. And it's taking place in the home of a man that used to be a leper. It seems to have been one that was healed by Christ. And as they're reclining, the woman approaches Jesus with an alabaster flask that would have looked something like this. Uh, made um, so it's translucent. Um, It's this vessel that holds within it a perfume that was made of spikenard or nard. And the plant that's used to produce nard, uh, there's a picture of it there for those of you that like flowers. Um, Like my wife, I did that for her there. There you go. Uh, It's found far away from Jerusalem, all right? It's in the area of China or India, and so it would have been very costly to get it to Jerusalem. That's why it was so expensive. Another gospel account says it was so expensive that it would have taken an entire year's salary to buy it. So if you make $50,000 a year, it would have taken $50,000 to buy it, so to speak. So it was very expensive. 
And most likely it had been held by this woman as a part of her dowry, something used to entice a potential suitor to marriage. And why this was such a big, uh, big deal was because that meant something in that day. I know it seems very odd to us in this day and age, but the reality was, was that a woman who couldn't get a suitor and get married and have offspring in that day would be lost in terms of ways of providing for herself. And so this was an amazing thing. And to add to the craziness of this situation, men and women who were not married rarely, if ever, interacted at this level of proximity, especially sitting at his feet. Even at parties like this, men and women would be on separate sides of the room or even in another room. If a woman came in to serve the men, she would go immediately back out. And so imagine it, this unnamed woman approaches Christ, probably walking past the looks of horrified awe of the men around Jesus. And she produces this very expensive bottle. And then she doesn't just open it and pour it out. She takes it and she smashes it. And when you smash a bottle like that, guess what you have to do? You have to use all of it. You can't limit it. You can't hold it back. She uses all of it. And look at what Mark specifies she uses it for. He says he anoint, she anoints his head. This is what was to be done to kings. And Mark is nodding here yet again to the fact that Jesus is king and will be enthroned through his work on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. And not only that, as Jesus states his appreciation, he declares that her actions will be alongside the gospel wherever it is proclaimed because the gospel is God's extravagant love and this action is extravagant. For in her actions, she has not only anointed him as king, but she has anointed his body before burial. To the audience sitting around him, they must have thought she had lost her mind. Why? He's not going to die. But he was about to go and give his life as a ransom for many and she somehow knew this based on what he had been saying in his teachings he would be the atoning sacrifice that justifies us before God and brings us forgiveness for our sins. But then, as she is performing this amazing act of worship and thanks, people in the crowd, possibly even Judas, which is kind of hinted at here and boldly proclaimed in another gospel that Judas is the one that spoke this, they declare it out loud or even internally as extravagant, that it exceeds what is reasonable or appropriate, even absurd. We still see this response in 2020, don't we? When a person truly grasps the gospel and surrenders their life to Christ, those around them will often cry out, this is absurd. Why would you become a Christian? Why would you give your life over? Why would you stop, quote unquote, having fun? Why would you do these things? When a brother or sister within the body of Christ even surrenders their life to Christ at a level that causes convictions for others around them, other Christians will say, hold on, slow down. What are you doing? Why are you going to that extent? This is absurd. But this is where we must understand the next truth this morning. A proper response to the gospel will seem absurd to the world. A proper response to the gospel will seem absurd to the world. As we look at this pouring out and the response that these people have around him, this is bad. You should have given the money to the poor, sold it and given the money to the poor. We do recognize that a faith that never works its way out in justice or care for the oppressed is not real faith. We, we agree with that, right? 
A faith that's not worked out in justice is not a real faith. But notice here that the person complaining about this act of worship is saying that it's actually absurd. Why? Because in their mind, it's absurd that they would be, in a sense, throwing away the worth of this thing on a rabbi. Now, they put it in supposedly holy terms by saying that it should have been spent on the poor. But guys, aside from the fact that justice is only truly justice, justice is only truly justice in as much as it gives honor to the king of justice, this comment missed the point completely. This gospel, according to, uh, the, the, the gospel according to John, declares that Judas is the one who said it. And so he was making this supposedly just comment out of a heart of selfishness and greed. Guys, we see this right now, and this is where we as Christians, this is a total side comment, must parse the idea of justice. The world cries out for a justice that is still pushing aside the reign of Christ. We will align with anyone on the topic of justice as long as it gives glory to the king of justice. Be careful in falling off the rails into social justice that is not under the reign of Jesus Christ. At the same time, some of us need to be spurred on to justice because our king demands it. And so we need to check our hearts on that. But that's just a side comment. In the mind of these people who say these things about Jesus and say that it was absurd that she would do this, it was absurd to them that this person would waste good money, something of immense value upon Jesus in worship. This is nothing more than a worldly mindset of riches, a worldly mindset of love. And this is why when Jesus proclaimed to the rich young ruler that he needed to sell all that he had and follow after him and give to the poor, it was responded to, well, that's absurd. And this is why when Jesus said, you must take up your cross and give up your life, for some it was seen as absurd. This is why when Jesus said to be one with him, you must be so intimately tied to him that you need to eat of his body and drink of his blood, it was seen as absurd. How do we know this? Because people walked away in all these cases. Dear friends, it will always be seen as absurd to surrender your life to Christ. The world will look at a person who devotes their time and energy to serving others, and they will ask you, well, when do you get yours? The world will look at the fact that you carve out one day in seven to press into Christ and his people, that it's actually a craving for you to be part of his body each week, and the world will look at you and say, what about your weekend? What's in it for you? The world will look at someone who, rather than simply make money with their talents, uses their talents to bless the kingdom of God and their local church, and they will say, well, that's a waste. Why not make money with it? The world will look at someone who gives of their financial treasure regularly to the body, locally and globally, and they'll wonder why on earth someone would take their hard-earned cash and give it away, especially to churches who've been so terrible with money. The world will look at someone who surrenders their sexuality to Christ, even to the point of chastity or faithfulness to heterosexual monogamy, and say, why don't you just do what feels right? The world will look at someone loving someone else without anything in return, even if they don't deserve it, and wonder why on earth you would sacrifice for someone who's your enemy. The world will look at surrendering your life to other brothers and sisters, literally giving your life over to them, submitting to their say in your life in covenant fellowship, and they'll say, what? What happens if you disagree or want to leave? The world will look at your faithfulness, brothers and sisters, 
and wonder, what's in it for you? Dear friends, to follow Christ will seem absurd to all worldly understanding, even our own. In the words of John the Apostle, though, this is why we love is because of God's extravagant love. Because of his absurd love, we love absurdly. 1 John 4, 10 through 11, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. A gospel of extravagant love deserves nothing less than a response of extravagant love. An absurd sacrifice on behalf of the Lord or on the part of the Lord requires a sacrifice in response that likewise seems absurd to the enemies of the cross. And even more so, when we start to realize what the gospel actually is, we realize that even our most extravagant response is nothing in comparison. And that's the point we'll finish on this morning. When we understand the gospel, even our extravagance is merely adequate. When we understand the gospel, even our extravagance is merely adequate. The book of Isaiah says that our good works are like filthy rags. They gain us nowhere in terms of reconciliation to God. By God's grace, he did all the work and then he poured out his spirit into us. And so by his grace, he's empowered us to give extravagant response And it actually is something. It's no longer dirty rags. It's something, and the Lord treasures it. He stores it up. But at the same time, we must understand that even our most extravagant love in this tiny little life we've been given is nothing in in comparison to the extravagant love of Jesus. This is similar to the widow who tossed her last two mites into the treasury offering. This woman comes and gives what might have been to Jesus her last offering to a potential suitor. And as I said earlier, in that society, as weird and unfortunate and even as evil as we think it to be today, she would have been giving away her last provision. In breaking this alabaster perfume jar and anointing the head of Jesus, she was, in a very real sense, giving her very life over to Jesus, surrendering her very future to him and saying, It's yours, do with it what you will. And to those watching, even some of the disciples, this seemed absurd, beyond what was necessary. Why don't you limit it a bit? But to this woman, the extravagance she lavished upon Jesus was merely adequate, if at all. You see, sometimes I think we put limitations I've heard many Christians say, you know, I did that church thing for like 10 years. You know, I, I, I think I did enough. I was in ministry for this long and, you know, I, I just got wore out. And so, you know, I, I, think, I think God's good. Guys, it's not a transaction Amen. where God gave us X number of pieces of love and so we give him X number of sacrificial duties. Amen. If that is our mindset, we're walking in a false gospel that's legalistic. But when we realize the extravagant love of Jesus that he has lavished upon us, that he's called us his children and given us an inheritance, all of a sudden, it makes total sense why we'd love him with our everything. Dear brothers and sisters, are there limitations that you have placed on your response to Christ and to his people 
that do not adequately reflect the extravagant love of Jesus? Do you compare yourself to other people in your peer group? For those of you that are younger, do you think, well, you know, I'm a little bit more passionate than maybe the rest of my friends, so where are your limitations? What is the extravagant worship that Jesus has called you to? I think for many of us in this room right now, the Holy Spirit is working something in us, reminding us of an extravagance that we have been unwilling to give, a limitation that we've put on ourselves and our worship. Maybe it's proactive in our time, our talents, our finances. Maybe in our sexuality or in our relationships. Maybe it's also just in an extravagance of giving up that pet sin that we've spent so long cultivating and holding on to. Maybe it's finally releasing that idol that we have walked with for decades and finally saying, enough is enough, Lord, it's yours. I'm going to kill that idol. Previously, that might have seemed like too much to you. You might have needed a plan B. But this woman has no plan B. She smashes it and uses it to anoint Jesus. Maybe your extravagance is standing firm on the truth of God's word when doing so you know will cause difficulty in relationships. Maybe it's in calling a brother or sister to repent and that's the extravagance of worship that you owe Jesus, but you're unwilling to do it at this point. Dear brothers and sisters, what have you been holding back from Christ because it is asking too much? And how will you go about giving it away to him in repentance? This woman understood what Jesus was about to do. She knew that through his death, she would be granted forgiveness. And because she understood that she was once an enemy of God, she also understood the cost of the sacrifice needed to bring her into reconciliation with God and that that sacrifice would be beyond compare. The author of the book of Luke does such an amazing job showing us this. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke does a a great job here. He gives us the similar story. And in in this case, uh, he's speaking to us and gives us more detail and pictures this woman as a woman that was one who probably, to the religious leaders, Jesus shouldn't have been around because she was unclean because of her lifestyle. And Jesus uh, responds. Jesus responds with a uh, parable at the end of uh, the story. It starts in verse 41 there. He says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. I was telling people in between services that uh, I'd let the waterworks go in the first service, and so I felt bad for you because you were getting the less genuine sermon, if you will. But even as I read this, tears creep up in my eyes. The reason is, is because when you get a glance at your own sin and see it for what it truly is, you recognize the extravagant love that Jesus was showing. When we get a glance at sin as if it's nothing, uh, we devalue the cross. We minimize the resurrection. And it is impossible for someone who is born into this world to be forgiven little. Why? Because we are all enormous sinners. We all have huge sin in our lives in the fact that we fight to rebel against God, even those of us who are saved. And so Jesus is being almost somewhat sarcastic here for the person who believes they are forgiven little. There's going to be little response, little love. When we glance at sin as if it's nothing, it leads to a worship that reflects little of the extravagant love that Jesus has shown us. This is why holiness is what the church is to be pressing for, is because to fight sin is to see it for the horribleness that it is. And we'll come to a place where Jesus actually owes us if we glance at sin. If we think, well, I've done so much for him and I wasn't that much of a sinner before and so he really owes me, we're going to end exactly where Judas did. Bitterness will set in and we'll end up giving into it. But brothers and sisters, when we recognize the depth of sin in our own lives and the depth of harm caused by even the slightest sin in which we act in injustice and unholiness to both God and man, at that point, we will cast aside anything to enter into the loving arms of Christ, to accept his forgiveness and respond with abandon. When we understand the gospel, even our extravagance is merely adequate. It is simply a recognition that in his death, Jesus lavished his love upon us to a place we could never fully understand. Brothers and sisters, is there sin in your life that you have minimized, which has cheapened the cross? And what action are you going to take today to repent of that sin and confess that that sin is in your life and confess that to someone in this body? In her actions, this woman anoints Jesus' body, declaring that he would be her atoning sacrifice. And anointing his head declares to her that he would be her king. And Jesus' response was, she has done a beautiful thing to me. We have been discussing endurance the last few weeks And it is a solid truth, dear friends, that if our motivation strays from being about recognition of the extravagant love of the gospel, we will find ourselves starting to fall away from passionate worship and putting limitations on worship. We will find ourselves critiquing passionate worship when we see it, and nothing will hold us firm. But if we go back to the basics of the gospel... It will empower us to serve Christ and live for him in a way that is beyond reason. When we have wandered from that truth to other things that have entered in, we need to look to the cross and remember that first moment 
in which the extravagant grace that Jesus lavished upon us took our breath away. Brothers and sisters, I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to remember back to that first time that the extravagant love of Jesus overwhelmed you and you fell to your knees, you cried out to God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for my sin that pinned you to the cross. In the book of Revelation, John tells the church in Ephesus, this is the key. This is what we must do. Look up at the screen with me here and let's read. In Revelation 2, verses 1 through 5, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Mission Fellowship, I wonder if he's talking to us. I would say as your pastor, the same thing to you. You have not grown weary. You have endured. You have fought. But I wonder if maybe the reason some of us are faltering in our faith or maybe falling into the chaos around us is because of this next piece. John says to them, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember your first love, dear Christian. Remember the extravagant love of Jesus that drew you to him, that he lavished upon you. Don't let the mere barrier of time from that first understanding cloud your thoughts and your heart. I want you to think today, what was the practical thing that you did when you first became a believer that helped you? Maybe it was an abandon in reading God's word. Maybe it was hooking up with that small group of people that you just got so much out of it and you need to plug back into fellowship. Maybe it was making church attendance and coming once uh, week after week, uh, a big thing in your life. Whatever it was, Think back to that thing that helped you just reach out in that first love of Christ. Go back to that. Engage in that again. What might you engage in again to remember that first understanding of the extravagant love of God? Write that down if you can think of it right now. And purpose to act in it this week. Brothers and sisters, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called his children, forgiven of our sin, and given an inheritance incorruptible for eternal life. Behold, look upon it today, and let's live lives that respond in a way that points the rest of the world's eyes to the astonishing grace an inconceivable truth of the gospel. Have you ever been around somebody who's just so awestruck with something that you stare at them for a while and you think, boy, they look kind of absurd. And then you look and see what they're looking at and you think, wow, whether it be a sunset or a sunrise or something beautiful, let's be those people that when others look at us, they see us staring into the face of Jesus in such an absurd way that they look themselves and they find their savior and their king.
Let's remember the extravagant love of Jesus and respond with an extravagant love of our own. Amen? Amen.